0: Our scripture readings this morning or this evening come from 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 through 15, and then Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 through 15. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. And prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And turning to Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, has been a help to, to many, many Christians. And um, for various reasons, I'm sure, but there's one particular quote, I think, that stands out uh, to many who have read this book. And the context of this quote uh, which some of you probably may be thinking of already, is where he's talking about pride. He's talking about human pride. And he says these words, There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The pride is that peculiar thing that we can be very unconscious of in ourselves, be blinded to it, and yet be very sensitive, sensitive in seeing it in others. I think it's fair to say that the tone of that that quote is quite similar uh, to the tone of this passage uh, before us this evening. These opening five verses of, of Paul, where he finds himself amidst this this argument, that I'd like us to look at in these four headings: uh, verse one, uh, judging others. That's kind of obvious what he's doing there. Verse 2, the judgment of God. Verses 3 through 4, misjudging God. And then verse 5, the judgment day. Again, judging others, verse 1, the judgment of God, verse 2, misjudging God, verses 3 through 4, then the judgment day, verse 5. You'll notice he begins with the word therefore. He's looking back to chapter 1, verse 18, where he began an argument that will continue to chapter 3. Verse 20, and in chapter 1, he began by making his case that God's, God has revealed his righteous wrath against the ungodliness of men. And that righteousness is being exposed and being revealed against the ungodliness of men because they are suppressing the knowledge of the truth. They're suppressing the ways in which God has made himself known to them. And in fact, we could characterize chapter 1, verses 19 through 32 this way that everyone is without excuse because they know better. And they know better because God has revealed himself. And he makes that exact same argument here, chapter 2, verse 1, that therefore you are without excuse. Why? He says, because you know better. You judge and you do the same things. And so we we have this kind of parallel uh, taking place here. The nations are without excuse. Why? Because of God's general revelation. He's made himself clearly present and known and uh, his wisdom and glory and power that are displayed in general revelation. But he says now to his audience, you are without excuse. And what he's assuming, we we'll get to here in a little bit explicitly, is that because God has revealed himself to you in a very special way, namely the law of God. So they're parallel arguments. The nations are without excuse. You're without excuse. But immediately Paul zeroes in on the problem. And the problem is not that his his audience... Uh, can spot the sins of the Gentiles or that they they call those sins for what they are or that they judge those sins and see what they properly deserve. No, that's not the problem. Here's the problem. They spot those sins. They can call sin for what it is and judge those sins and then do the very same things themselves. Practice the very same things themselves. And it's interesting how Paul does this. He kind of sets up his readers. He kind of sets a trap. He doesn't state who his audience is explicitly. He doesn't do that until verse 17. But he suddenly moves from the third person, talking about they and they. He moves to the second person. He says, you. He moves from the nations and moving to his Jewish audience. And it's very subtle. He was talking about the nations and listing all of their, their wickedness and their rebellion and, and their sin. And you could hear the Jewish readers behind him cheering him on, saying, Amen. See how shameful the nations are? That's right, Paul. Hit him again. Look at the idolatry that, they're, that they are guilty of. How typical. And then he lists the sexual immorality. His audience is horrified. And then Paul springs the trap. He says, so why do you do the same things? Why do you judge them when you do exactly the same things? And the you here is clearly his Jewish readers. He makes it clear in verse 17. Paul doesn't say it. He kind of drew them in subtly. Not that different from what happened with David. David sinned terribly uh, with Bathsheba. And um, Nathan comes and tells him this story about this poor man with this one new lamb. That lamb is taken from him by this rich and insensitive rich man. And David condemns that, that rich man. He says, you are the man. You are the man, Nathan says to David. And Paul says, you're not only passing judgment on others, you're actually passing a judgment on yourself. That's exactly what happens with David, his hypocrisy is seen in that he seizes another man's wife and has her husband killed. And yet, if somebody seizes and slaughters a little lamb, he deserves death. David sees the speck in his brother's eyes so clearly and can make a righteous judgment. But he doesn't see himself. But in all this, he, he judges himself. And Paul says you kind of do the same thing as he moves to verse two, the judgment of God. He says, Now we know that God rightly judges all who practice such things. The such things are what he listed in chapter one, verses twenty-nine through thirty-one. Evil, covetousness, malice, envy, strife, all these things, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And Paul says, You're right to condemn this sinful behavior because God does too. The only problem is God condemns these sinful practices. In everybody, He does it without prejudice. Literally, God judges according to the truth, without prejudice. And Paul assumes their agreement, that we know this. I know this, you know this, everybody knows this. He assumes that, we know this. And yet they persist in doing what is condemned, not just by them, but also by God. Their sin is hypocrisy. You judge others, and yet you're committing exactly the same sins. It's like what Jesus says, With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. If you judge, you'll be judged in the same way. But I think it's important here at this point to see how this this idea and this word, practice, makes all the difference. Those who practice such things. Because everybody sins, including Christians. The best of Christians sin. But here he's talking about Sin is a lifestyle, practicing wickedness without repentance. John Murray puts it this way. It's one thing for sin to live in a Christian. It's another thing for a Christian to live in sin. And you see, it's the latter. That's the concern of Paul here. He's speaking about a life that is committed to sin, this, this waywardness of life that's committed to sin, and yet judging others, looking down upon them, scorning them, condemning them and doing exactly the same things it's this hypocrisy he's he's concerned about but it raises the question of what explains this how how did this happen where did where did his audience go wrong and i think there are two explanations for this that are given verses 3 through 4 and it's this that they misjudged god and they misjudged him in two ways and the first way is that they were thinking too lightly of god's justice Look at verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? That judgment of God, His justice, that's a concern here. To think that you can practice sin and yet escape God's justice is not just arrogant, it's delusional. They're judging others. That's presumptuous. Practicing the same sins. That's hypocritical. But to minimize the seriousness of sin and light of the righteousness of God? All sin deserves God's wrath. It deserves his eternal punishment. But you see what he's exposing the extent of their sin is, is seen in this spiritual hoax that they actually think that they are exempt from God's righteousness. They just see somehow or that they don't need to be concerned about that. But God's justice exposes everyone who practices wickedness, whether Jew or Gentile, that's a point he's making. It almost seems unbelievable that somebody could confess God, could confess this God, the true and the living God, and yet slight his righteousness. This is a terrible, terrible miscalculation. That's the first way they went wrong. The second way is found in verse 4, where they were thinking too loosely about God's kindness or his grace or goodness, whatever word we want to use there. They were thinking too loosely. About God's kindness. Look at verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? They have forgotten something precious the greatness of God's grace, the greatness of God's goodness to them with regard to their sin. That God's patience and his forbearance, this kindness, is meant to lead us to repentance. That's why those are there. It's similar to what Paul or Peter says in 2 Peter 3:9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should repent. Of course, the question. Behind this question is, will God put up with such contempt for his patience forever? No. No. This is a serious problem. It's one thing to be so arrogant as to judge the sin in others, but practice these things. It's another thing to be so callous, to forget how God's grace leads us to repentance. When we think of these two problems, which is worse? Which is the greater problem? To slight God's justice or to slight God's? Kindness to dismiss what your sins deserve or to dismiss the grace that saves you from what your sins deserve. It's hard to say. These are both bad, bad mistakes. And the point he's making is not to think too lightly about sin in light of who God is. Whether we think in terms of his his righteousness or we think in terms of his his grace and his and his goodness, that a healthy thinking believer trembles at the thought. Of God's judgment, but rejoices at the thought of God's grace. Neither is to be diminished or understated. That all who practice sin seriously misjudge their position before God. To take God's place as a judge and to condemn the sins of others, this is, this is arrogant. Or to defy God's place as judge by practicing the same sins, that's hypocritical. But to disdain God's justice and to despise God's grace is folly. It's almost to have forgotten who God is and who we are as we stand before him. And there's a posture here that seems to have a, a mindset uh, of thinking that God doesn't see or that God doesn't know or that God doesn't care or that God will never act. And that is being deceived. Paul talks about this in Galatians 6. Galatians 6, seven. he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Do not be deceived. And if it seems like the text could not get any more sober, any more bracing, we come to verse 5, where he brings up Judgment Day. But because of your hard and a penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. And God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And here Paul presents a great danger. The danger of a hard-hearted sinner and what awaits them. And he uses this vocabulary of storing up in verse 5. It's a word that often is associated with really wonderful things in the Bible. Treasuring or storing up treasure. Storing up good things. Wonderful things. But here it's storing up wrath. And it's similar to the argument he made in chapter 1 about the nations, what they were storing up. The nations, they know God is there. They're without excuse, yet they practice their their sin. And so God's wrath is being revealed against them because of their hard hearts. But now he uses the parallel language here. The Jews, they know they're without excuse, yet they practice sin. And so God's wrath is in store for them because of their hard hearts. What are they storing up? God's righteous judgment. The day of wrath, what is the day of wrath? It's the day of the Lord. It's the, it's the We have to appreciate these are like a small thimble compared to what this day is that Paul is talking about here. It's this day described to us that there will be no place to run, no place to hide. There will be no sanctuary whatsoever. That men will beg the mountains to fall upon them in order to escape the white hot anger of God. It's a terrible thing to consider. But he's saying everyone, Jew or Gentile, are without excuse. There is no excuse. So what we have here is a significant warning Two warnings, I would say. The first warning is is very clear. It's very simple. Do not practice sin. Period. But especially do not practice sin without repentance or without regard to God's righteousness on the one hand or, or scorning God's grace on the other hand. And this is something that seems inconceivable for a person who has tasted the forgiveness of sins, who understands what it means to be drawn near to God, to be made a son or a daughter of God, and then to turn around and continue and brazenly sin. And there's a warning here to, to avoid this past and to be concerned about one's heart becoming insensitive to God in this way. But you can see, by the way we've looked at this passage, the way I've explained it, that the real concern he has here is hypocrisy of anybody who confesses God, somebody who judges others while practicing the same things looking down upon others while we coddle the very same sins and refuse to repent of them and do not seem to show any grief over these things or no desire to turn away from them or not even want to want to turn away from them. And yet, to still expect to receive mercy from a God who judges in perfect righteousness, this is to dismiss, to dismiss God's righteousness on the one hand or his kindness on the other. And it's one of those sermons perhaps where in our hearts we might be tempted to think, I hope so and so is listening. I hope you are too. I am. Who is not exposed by a text like this? It brings us back to the thing that Christ warned his disciples about so many times. You know, hypocrisy. It was that one thing that Christ, where he was not concerned about the doctrine of the Pharisees, he was concerned about how they would infect his disciples with hypocrisy, this leaven he'd warned them about that would spread. This comes up in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, where Christ warns about praying or doing deeds of righteousness or fasting or anything in order to be seen, to put on a front of religious goodness. He warns about it in the seven woes of Matthew 23, using some of the strongest language we ever hear coming from the lips of Christ. And he turns us around and he warns all of his followers of this very thing, that it's closer than you think. It's to have a divided heart and to serve serve two masters, to want to look good on the one hand and yet to, to love sin on the other hand. The very word itself means to wear a mask. Is to try to put on a presentation of something that looks good, but it's a total lie. It is, it is false, and it's dangerous. If you see this, if you see this at all, and are willing to admit it, there's is, there is hope for you. Indeed, there's hope for all of us who are recovering hypocrites. But there's only one hope. There's hope for those who trust in Christ. He is our only hope. And look away from themselves and look to His life. Any true Christian, in their heart of hearts, would tell you the last thing I would ever put confidence in is my obedience, my life, my love. And who look to His and to look to His His sacrificial death, who look to His His life of obedience, to look to to Him. Calvin said, by disobedience we are ruined. Only by obedience can we be redeemed. It's the obedience of Christ that we look to. And this is exactly why he was sent into this world, to be a propitiation for our sins. On the one hand, to exhaust the wrath of God against us, but on the other hand, to win the favor of God through his obedience. That was his very delight, to obey the Father, to do all of his will, to do it perfectly well, and to seek glory and honor and immortality for the highest and most noble of motives And yet, on the other hand, to bear all of our sin, all of its guilt, all of its condemnation, even all of its hypocrisy, and all that righteous wrath of God, so that not a single drop of it would remain against us. Somebody has said that Christ took our condition upon himself in order that we might inherit his. And this is so important, because he speaks of this day of the Lord, this this terrible day. But anybody who trusts in Christ needs to understand that this, this day of the Lord that is coming, this, this unmeasured outpouring of, of God's wrath, is not our day of judgment. Our day of judgment is not in the future. It's in the past. It was at, at Calvary. What is the cross of Jesus Christ? It's a day of wrath. It certainly is. It's a day of judgment. But that's why it's our day of salvation. Paul says that God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ because of what happened at the cross. It was God's judgment against our sin and Christ took it all away. And God declares every sinner who looks to Christ and is trusting in him declares that sinner to be forgiven of their sins and to be made acceptable in his sight because the cross is two things. Yes, it's true. It is the unmeasured outpouring of God's righteousness which Christ has exhausted in himself. But the cross is also the unmeasured outpouring of God's kindness, which can never be exhausted. You see, this kindness of God, this patience, this forbearance of God manifested and put on display in Christ. This is meant to lead you and me to repentance. Again, tonight. Are you bothered by hypocrisy? Does it grieve you? Does it, does it bother you? Do you? Sometimes do you see what you could become? Then you should be encouraged. Those are the thoughts and the signs and the sounds of repentance and that desire to desire to be a genuine follower of Christ. It's very simple, brothers and sisters. We need to confess our sin, and confess our hypocrisy and look to Christ for forgiveness. To look to the Spirit of God who indwells us to enable us to die to sin and put off all those false ways. But also to walk in righteousness and that desire to walk in sincerity and in truth and integrity, to be a people who are real. And who look to the promises of God for all those who do walk in the truth and walk in sincerity and walk in integrity. Because Paul goes on to say in Galatians 6, 7, these words, Do not be deceived. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. That is a beautiful promise. Do not be deceived, he says. God will not abandon you to your sin. He will not let you go. Do not give up. Continue to sow in sincerity, and you will reap this good harvest that God promises to bring about in your life. Sin will not reign. Grace reigns in righteousness, and that leads to eternal life. So this evening again, let us come back to the very simple things of the gospel and let God's kindness and patience and his forbearance lead us to repentance again. And lead us to faith in Jesus Christ again. I don't know how else to say it, but you and I, we have no excuse. Let us pray.